that we're working on the Song of Solomon. And it starts out by saying the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. <laughs> so, we know, first of all, that this is a song. It's written to be sung, not maybe so much to be preached or taught. Um, it's a different kind of a thing than uh, other kinds of uh, writing in the Bible. Um, it's poetic, uh, which songs generally are. So, you know, when you get poetry, you're intended to smell it and touch it and taste it and hear it and see it and feel it and all that kind of stuff. And that's the nature of this. It's the song of songs. When you deal with that kind of uh, language, think about the holy of holies. It was their superlative, the most holy, or the king of kings, the greatest, highest king, or the vanity of vanities, the thing that was the most empty, and a lot of others in the Old Testament. So this is kind of like the superlative song. This is the greatest song. Now, we come to just all kinds of questions when we start out with this in the book. Which is Solomon's. <laughs> what is Solomon's relationship to this song? It could be mean uh, in Hebrew that he was the subject of this. This could be the song about Solomon. It could be that he's the author. It could be the song written by Solomon. Or both. Or it could even be a song inspired by Solomon though not about him or written by him. So that uh, that leaves us with a lot of ambiguities. I narrowly prefer seeing this as a song written by but not about Solomon. There are some references to Solomon in the book that are a bit complicated trying to figure out what that refers to, but especially some references in chapter 8 seem unlikely to me that this is the book, a book about Solomon. Also, Solomon's colorful marital history makes it more difficult to see this as a book about Solomon, in my judgment. So, I wouldn't be dogmatic on hardly anything in Song of Solomon, but I'm going to teach it from the standpoint of this not being about Solomon, but Solomon writing uh, about, uh, you know, other characters. Um, there's some other debated points that are really pretty important. Um, is this about uh, human love or God's love for his people or maybe Jesus' love for his people? I think that's a valid question and, again, not too easy to answer. There are some times in the Bible where marriage is used as an analogy for God's relationship with his people, right? We think about Ephesians 5, but even Psalm 45, which seems to be talking about Solomon's wedding, was quoted as applying to Jesus' relationship to his people in Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, you might consider Psalm 72 as well. But, I have done some reading into some uh, interpretations that take this as an extended allegory where everything has no relationship to human beings at all relates to God and his people and wow that's really difficult uh, really arbitrary and doesn't seem natural the natural <clears throat> reading of this he describes the bodies of the man and the woman the woman's described three times in rather graphic detail and some other things that seem to me like we are dealing with human love. But I think every time we deal with human love, then we are also understanding things about God and Jesus' love for his people. So I'm going to take it as both, but with the primary foreground focus as being love between a husband and wife, and then taking applications of that to Christ and his people. That's that's my uh, preference. Let me tell you. Let me talk about a couple more debated points, and then I'll let you get into the debate if you want. Um, there is the question: Is this primarily about two characters or three? There is a common interpretation that this was a woman 
who's been taken into Solomon's harem and is being wooed by the powerful, wealthy Solomon, but in fact is in love with her simple uh, shepherd boy back in the country that really loved her and was genuine and sincere and all of that. And she's, you know, working on that. The problem, one of the problems with that interpretation is you have to have somebody sitting beside you telling you every verse, who's saying this about whom, and she's saying it to whom while she's really thinking about what, and doing all this. It's really arbitrary. It's a cool story. I mean, that's kind of a typical love story, right? We've had that love story in a lot of uh, literature. But I think it makes it almost impossible to read and understand what this is talking about. I, I prefer the simplicity of the two-person view. Here's another debated issue. Um, and I'm pretty close to changed my view on every, almost every debated issue in the book uh, since I last taught this uh, 20 years ago. Um, so is this a story that deals with, like, the courtship and marriage, and what comes after the marriage of this couple, or not? Are they married to start with? And is this not so much a story about them, like a narrative about them? It's hard for me to see them as not married from the beginning. This starts with an earthquake. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And it gets deeper after that. Um, if they're not married, they're doing some things they shouldn't supposed to be doing. So I take them as being married from the very beginning. I think there's a flashback, possibly, to their wedding, uh, or at least to their wedding night, and some things like that. But there are just, in these first three chapters that are supposed to be pre-wedding, I don't know, the language, I think, just really demands that they're together. And uh, I don't think he's suggesting premarital uh, affair. So so I, I think there this is not so much a story. I think these are uh, maybe um, love poems or love songs. Um, but not. I, I'm not trying to see so much some kind of a connected story. Like, you know, here's the introduction, the various things that happen to them, and the conclusion. That's not really what I'm seeing. And all of that is tentative. You know, I certainly don't feel myself overqualified in Song of Solomon. I read a ton, and it was really interesting. But it's like, still, you know, what is this talking about? I think we can say some things that are valid. I, I My interpretation will not come up with any overly startling things that like, well, I'd never guess that from anything else in the Bible. Um, I think there's some practical things in this, uh, both in terms of marriage and in terms of our relationship to God. Um, but I'm certainly anything that I say on this, as well as anything else, but especially this, is open to a debate. So that's kind of my introduction. What questions and comments do you all have on that? Why is it in the Bible? <clears throat> Well, I guess because God wanted it to be. Um, does he want us to have some um, teaching about marital love, about, um, you know, intimacy and things like that? It, he made husband and wife. He does give some basic teachings and other passages about marriage. <clears throat> so why not songs relating to marriage love? And knowing that this is an analogy to Christ's relationship to us, certainly it's teaching about that in a deeper sense as well. How did, is there any indication of how the Israelites looked at this? I mean, because, I mean, we can look back and go, okay, so this is an allegory of uh, Christ in the church and uh, to some extent, but what did when they read it they didn't yeah I'm not sure about that I don't know the answer does it get quoted? There, somebody would but I don't <coughs> does it ever get quoted like in the New Testament like some of the other books not really I can't think of anything in it I mean we take some quotes out of it 
uh, Rose of Sharon, for example, though we misunderstand it. <laughs> and, and so there may be some allusions, but I don't know that there's a citation of something actually in Song of Solomon. I can't think of anything anyway. Lily of the Valley comes from that, doesn't it? Right. Or is it both? Or is it just Sharon now? Yeah. Yeah. Do, we use them, do we use them both wrong? Um, well, yeah. We're not um, there yet. You know, he, that's, that's 2-1. I'm the Rose of Sharon and the Lily of the Valleys. We generally take that as a compliment, and she meant it, meant it as a self-put-down. So. so, yeah, kind of exactly the opposite of what you Pretty write. Pretty close, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that nice song about it. It is better over Mia's love. I know there are children's songs about that. Okay, yeah. I mean, so we we do quote it some, but I I can't think of some just like a it is written kind of thing out of Song of Songs. We quote that in the game. So there are some parts that are not very quotable. (laughs) 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 In very many contexts. Some of it's pretty graphic. Um, there's quite a few things in the Old Testament that are pretty graphic. Yeah. Um, we have probably a little bit more puritanical standards of uh, graphicness than what they did. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, you know, on the other hand, wow, this is still cloaked in poetry and metaphor and things like that. It's not gross language. And, I mean, you know, I think he deals with tastefully with the subject, even though he may talk about some body parts we would not, you know, talk about or whatever. Um, I think, you can generally tell what's going on, but I mean, it's not, I don't think it's just unreasonably explicit. Other thoughts? I will say a couple of things just about, you know, the view of human love that we ought to have. I mean, Human love ought to be respected and and appreciated, celebrated. God gave it to us. And, you know, it seems to me like when we are developing an understanding of biblical sexual morality, that our view needs to be more than just don't. Because in part, the answer to the sexual brokenness of our world is the beauty of the picture of the sexual wholeness that the Bible presents. This shows what the what the valid, the virtuous thing is. I don't think we ought to view a physical sexual relationship as degrading or a necessary evil. I don't think we ought to look at our bodies as negative as, you know, well, if we just didn't have a body, we'd be so much better off and all that. If we just didn't have, you know, physical desires, wouldn't that be wonderful? I don't think that's the proper understanding of that. I don't think virginity is a higher, more spiritual state than marriage. There may be some value in some situations to maintaining virginity, but I don't think that it's somehow more virtuous. Um, Really, I think this book will develop Proverbs 5, 15 to 19, drinking water from your own cistern and so forth, rejoicing in the wife of your youth in more detail. Uh, God invented our bodies and he wants us to have uh, pleasure in our mate. Uh, That's what he intends. Um... You know, when she talks about her mate, she's not going to be talking about sharing a Bible study and praying together, but talking about kissing and caressing and all the stuff that goes with that. Um, On the other hand, I think it ought to be said as well that marital love is not everything. You know, and I think sometimes people expect more out of marriage than it's reasonable for it to deliver. So you take singles that are desperate to get married and you can't wait, and boy, they think it's going to just solve everything they've ever suffered. Well, only the Lord can fill us up. No wife, no husband can ever do that for us. And this is only one book out of 66. You know, there's a lot more in the Bible than just Song of Solomon and marriage love. So, you know, I, I think this helps bring a balance. We, we see the value, the beauty, and all that. But we also need to understand that It's not saying that, well, if you never get married, you're terribly handicapped. Or, you know, that you've got to get married because you don't know what you're missing. You know, whatever. It's not like that. To some extent, I think Song of Solomon is for girls what Proverbs is for boys. Um, 
And, you know, we're just going to see a lot of things in this. Um, and one more thing before we get into actually reading it and talking about the different things that it, sa- it says. Um, I think something, I, I, I would say I'm not a model in any of this, but, but I, I find it interesting that these two declare their love for each other. There's verbal expression of love. And that's something probably, you know, not so common, maybe, in our culture. But I, I think it's interesting and, and helpful, thought, thought-provoking, to see how much they express, you know, how much they care about each other and what they see in each other and so forth. And we'll see that. All right, thoughts or comments about all that? I, about two to four. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Okay, so notice she uh, goes from talking about he to talking about you, and then talking about him again. So she goes from third person to second person, back to third person. When she mentions he, she doesn't identify him. I mean, she doesn't need to. He's everything to her. You'll see that. (laughs) So, I mean, there's the, you know, whenever it's a he, he's who she's got in mind. Uh, And she says, may he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She really wants closeness to him. She wants intimacy. And she wants him to take the initiative and, and, and lead the charge in that. Uh, she wants him to provide leadership, but she's not shy about communicating that. You know, she tells him what she wants him to take the initiative in doing. Because your love is better than wine. You know, wine is often associated with pleasure, enjoyment, rapture. And wine and love are linked throughout this, this book. And so it's like, you know, she's drunk on, on love. She's intoxicated by how, you know, giddy she is with the, the love that he uh, pours out to her. Um, she says, your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Now, I assume, you know, he's got some good cologne on or whatever. Essential uh, oils. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Do essential oils do something to help with the body odor? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Well, they, whatever oils these are, they seem to be uh, fragrant oils. Maybe I don't know if those are essential or not. But. <laughs> but notice his name is like purified oil. You know, his person, his character, his identity is better than extravagant perfume. She's in love with more than just what he looks like or what he smells like on the surface. She's in love with his his character, his integrity. Even in love, character counts. You know, just because he's really nice looking, if he has no character, you wouldn't want him. And she says, therefore, the maidens love you. You know, it's, uh, it's bad if nobody else can see in the person you love what you can see in them. (laughs) You know, if, uh, if she shouldn't be the only person in the world that thinks she's a really lucky girl. You know, so he's a valued commodity. Other people think highly of him as well. If the person's worthy for us, there'll be other people that appreciate him as well. Um, so she says to him, or about him, well, to him, draw me after you and let us run together. Again, she wants him to carry her off. Um, you know, draw me after you. The the idea of taking me. The king has brought me into his chamber. He, she uses that brought verb several times for bringing her to the bedroom, I think is the idea. And so she is not dragging him off. I'm not saying she would never do that, but in this case... She's wanting him to take her away, asking him to initiate the action. And of course, she wants to be taken into his chamber. She wants privacy with him. She wants to to really have uh, time just with him. Um, they have a special relationship just for themselves. You you see them go into his chambers. You are, we aren't given uh, 
ever a look at exactly what happens behind closed doors. That that would be private for the two of them. Um, notice she speaks of him as the king. I think because he's her king. She's also going to talk about him being a shepherd, and I think because he's her shepherd. These are kind of her pet terms for him. He's going to have some for her as well. Um, and then there's this, um, you know, chorus, I guess you could say, we will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love more more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Um so I think this is probably talking about like the daughters of Jerusalem she'll talk about frequently. I think they are celebrating the love of these two. They re- they rejoice and they approve of that. Um, so, I mean, the king has brought me into his chambers. You can't think about that, perhaps, without thinking about the fact we have a king who's brought us into his chambers. Uh, we ought to think about the Lord also in that. And we ought to have the same... Um, Focus on him, the same devotion to him. You know, she's always dreaming about this man, always amazed by him. You know, we ought to feel that same way about the Lord. You know, always dreaming about him, amazed by him. You know, always talking about him and, you know, wanting everybody else to know about him and all of that. Sometimes we may live our spiritual life as a functional single. And we're married. We've got a, we've got a husband that we really need to treasure and value and, you know, have eyes especially for him. And and certainly we need to have st- stop having affairs with the world. Uh, you know, if, if somebody came to you and said they were having real marriage problems and incidentally mentioned as they talked about that, their uh, extracurricular activities, I think you'd say, well, hey, there's a big part of your problem. You know, how do you expect to have a good marriage when you're not devoted exclusively to your mate? So I think her love for him is a good illustration of the commitment and closeness we ought to have to Jesus. Thoughts and comments through verse 4. Right? 5 and 6. I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, but they made me keeper of the vineyards, but in my own vineyard I have not kept. So this is her talking. I see her as defensive, as insecure, as somewhat embarrassed here, over her complexion. She's black, and she feels like as dark as she is, she can't really measure up to conventional standards of beauty. Um... Maybe she fears that she'll never find true love because she's not really pretty. Now, why is she black? Because she's been outside. She's been in the sun too much. It's darkened her complexion because her mother's sons were angry with her and made her stay out there taking care of the vineyard. She doesn't seem to have a very good relationship with her mother's sons. You know, kind of reminds you almost of the Cinderella story in reverse, you know, male versus female. You know, she's got these cruel stepbrothers that uh, are very harsh with her, and she feels exploited and oppressed. Um, and maybe they shouldn't have treated her that way. But what it's meant is she's got a very dark complexion, and she's crying out for for affirmation. She wants somebody to see her and love her for her true beauty, even though she's so dark. Um, you understand that uh, we've changed fashions in feminine beauty over the years. And, you know, uh, I suspect there would be no tanning booths back in the Song of Solomon day. Uh, you know, it's just funny how our view of what's pretty changes from place to place and from era to era. Uh, I often illustrate Brazilian women are trying to get lighter and somewhat more filled out. Brazilian men seem to like their women with a little bit more to love. You know, if you look at the, uh, you know, American beauty queens, we seem to like, you know, people who are emaciated, you know. Um, it's just a, you know, it's, it's a cultural thing. You know, look at the pictures of the beauty queen winners 60 years ago. 
they are hideous. <laughs> you know, you're thinking, were there no beautiful women back in those days? Well, of course, the style was so different. You know, the hair, the complexion, everything about, you know, beauty and the dress and all that changes from time to time, and we change with it. And Which means it's kind of superficial when it's all said and done. Um, but But so she is not the picture of Solomon era beauty. You know, she is weather beaten and uh, dark uh, with a complicated family situation evidently, but she wants people to see past that and she sure wants people to know, you know, what happened. It wasn't her fault. She hadn't been able to take care of her vineyard because if she'd been taking care of the family vineyard, her vineyard of course being her own body. Uh, she hasn't been able to dedicate herself to caring for her appearance and her complexion and all that. Um, and so she feels that. And, you know, isn't that interesting? While our standards of beauty have changed, our deep concerns over our appearance and the image of our body has not. You know, people still care enormously about what they look like. It's amazing how much time and money is spent on trying to doctor up the raw material we've been uh, given. And it's it's like, wow, we it really matters to us. That we look good. I mean, think about all that we spend on decorating our bodies. You know, both jewelry and clothing and all that kind of stuff. And so she's right in line. Maybe the standards are different, but right in line with how many women today feel, and men as well, who are just extremely insecure about their appearance and trying to do everything they can to make sure they look okay. Um, And I think there's a spiritual application here. We are black but Jesus loves us anyway. You know, we want to be beautiful. We want to be attractive, but deep down we know we're not. And it's so encouraging that Jesus loves us anyway. And he sees value in us and beauty in us, even though there is no inherent beauty or value that we can find in ourselves. So, but she is very insecure. And and we're going to see that her man is very uh, responsive to her concerns about that. Thoughts and questions on five and six. Do we have any idea? Or are we just assuming from this, like, did they value lighter skin? Obviously, I assume from this they did. Okay, <laughs> that is so funny. Like, I had some Asian friends that were probably like just about the exact shade that I would choose. Like, if I were choosing right. like that really nice dark and. Uh, one of them was like, oh no, like all the Asian girls want to, are trying to be lighter. <laughs> yes, yes. Remember we want what we don't have. Yeah. You know, but, but it's, it's like, yeah, we, we, it's incredible how we are because certainly Brazilians, I mean, there's no tanning salons in Brazil, I don't think, uh, but there's a lot of lightening, uh, approaches, uh, I don't know. I'm not. I've never looked into it. But they're not taking arsenic like they used to. I don't know. Uh, But it's just funny. I mean, it's just like you know. I I think it definitely does say let's not get carried away with appearance stuff because it's going to change. I mean, you know, whatever you are now, twenty years from now, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be the same. So, but if you can trap somebody in before you get to that point, (laughs) (laughs) it's true. Other thoughts? How do we know that when she talks about my own vineyard, she's talking about her own body? Because she just is. <laughs> <laughs> There's going to be a no. that, and I was thinking there are other places where that metaphor is used. But yes, there are other places in Song of Solomon where. There's some vineyard ideas that we'd go back to this and say she's talking about her body. Uh, for example, uh, in 8.12, my very own vineyard is at my disposal. I think she means her own body and so forth. So, yeah, but you know how this is. Poetry and figurative language is difficult to come up with a, like an analytical definition that's going to work. I mean, we're trying to understand it in context, and so she does use vineyard several times, really, here. Sometimes it seems like the vineyard's being used literally, and sometimes for the body, and sometimes it's hard to tell which is which, so... Because, I mean, even right here, it's like... That's right. So if it's really the caretaker of the physical vineyards, the physical place where grapes grow, 
and then, but she's right. not she's just, so she uses own. that and yeah. turns it. Yes, yeah. which is a typical it's thing very like that. Poetic, yeah, so. it's very poetic, exactly. But it doesn't lend itself to uh, logical proof sometimes. So kind of left with our own uh, impression, uh, which makes me much more uncertain that I've got the right idea. But all right, how about seven and eight? Tell me, O oh you whom my soul loves, where do you pasture your flock? Where do you make it lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? If you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and, and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. So, she wants to know from him where he pastures his flock and has it lie down at noon. Now, she calls him... You whom my soul loves. Notice, her soul, as so often in the Bible, doesn't mean your spirit. It means your person. When she says, my soul loves, she's not trying to say my body doesn't, but my soul does. She's trying to say my whole person loves you. Her life is shepherd-shaped. And uh, she's making her feelings about him very clear. You know, they are not bashful to tell each other what they think about each other. Uh, but she really wants to be in his presence. And particularly when he's got the flock laying down to where they can spend some personal time together. She doesn't just want to wait till he gets home at the end of the day. Can't she see him at, in the noontime? Uh, maybe she has more in mind than just conversation. Um, so she doesn't want to have to, you know, inquire about him from tent to tent trying to search for him. You know, that would be, uh, you know, not pleasant. She wants to know where she can go and find it. Why would she not know that? It's like they're already married, you know. Like. Well, I suppose you don't always pasture your flocks in the same place every day, right? Okay. <laughs> I haven't pastured any flocks lately, but... Uh, Please put the schedule on the refrigerator. So you can yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, where are you going to be? <laughs> and uh, so he says, listen, if you yourself do not know, most beautiful among women, go forth on the trail of the flock and pasture your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Now, did you notice? He is very attentive to what she wanted and what she needed. Before he gets to where he's going to be at, he responds to, I'm really not as ugly as I look. By saying, you are most beautiful among women. She was crying out with insecurity for affirmation. He addresses that immediately, and he's going to do it in the next segment even more. He reassures her she need fear nothing regarding her appearance. She is the most beautiful among women. And we're going to see that consistently with him. I'll, uh, in a later lesson, I'll talk a little bit more about how we ought to see our wives. But but he's very, very quick to respond to that angle. You know, he doesn't want her having any worries that she doesn't look good enough. She is the most beautiful among women. And then he gives her directions where to find him. You know, you need to go to the trail of the flock, pasture your the young goats by the tents of the shepherds, and Evidently, that's going to be where she can see him, find him, where he's going to be. Um, so he, he's not at all reluctant for her to come and uh, them have some uh, time together at noon. Thoughts and comments? So is she also a maybe goat Maybe she's a yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but it sounds good. Herds person. The uh, what we need today, right? <laughs> or maybe a herd attendant? Yeah. <laughs> An animal care engineer. <laughs> maybe so. Just to stay gender neutral now. Yes. So whatever she was, she's going to be able to find him. When she says, or why should I be like one who veils herself besides the flock? Is she saying, why should I be shy? Or why should I be... I don't know. I think why should she go from tent to tent, but why she'd veil herself? Was that the custom when she'd go into somebody's tent? Or inquire at the tent? I don't really know. 
Like she's saying, why should I be looking around for you? Like that's what she's around. saying. Okay. Yes, I think she's saying, why should I have to go tent to tent for you? I need to find out where you are. She has no interest in the guys in the other tents. I think that may be implied as well. Wasn't it with Isaac and Rebecca that she, when she saw him coming, she veiled yeah, herself, yeah, yeah. which was a sign that she was available? I don't know what it was a sign of. <laughs> Not available like that. There right? is a relatively strong element among the commentaries who says you, the prostitutes were veiled because Tamar was veiled in Genesis 34, but she was veiled so that Jacob wouldn't know who she was. Judah wouldn't know who she was. Uh, Genesis not 34, 38. But, uh, so I think that's kind of bogus. Uh, but some of these things are like, I don't know. A lot of these things are like that. 9 through 11. To me, my darling, you are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. We will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. To me, my darling, that's one of his terms for her. You are like my mare among the chariots of Pharaoh. That might not sound complimentary. (laughs) (laughs) You know, don't necessarily go around calling your wife a horse. But, <laughs> but <is> there, <laughs> because what he's saying, <laughs> what he is saying is that you introduce a mare among the stallions pulling Pharaoh's chariots, and they're going to be so distracted they're not going to be able to go to war. In fact, that appears to have maybe sometimes been a battle tactic. Send a mare in, and you get the stallions all uh, confused. Great idea. Out of the ultimate distraction. He's saying, you drive the guys wild. You know, you're like a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. I mean, all of them are just, uh, you know, googly-eyed for you, or whatever we'd say. She's so pretty that she brings everybody into confusion. So he's again addressing that insecurity of hers. She has no idea the kind of stir she causes everywhere she goes. If there's a man around, you know, he's going to notice. Um, so that's what she's saying. I mean, he's got some cool ways, once you stop and think about it, of reaffirming her, uh, you know, appearance. She is, uh, she's a knockout, we'd say. And he's going to do everything possible to give jewelry appropriate to a woman as beautiful as she is. You know, your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. I mean, only a woman as beautiful as her could, could you know, actually look good in such beautiful jewelry as she has. By the way, you know, there's a strain of interpretation that misunderstands some not-but passages in the, US, in, in the New Testament. To, to indicate that we shouldn't wear jewelry. Well, it's clear from the Old Testament that there was nothing sinful about jewelry. And there was jewelry used in several occasions. And uh, so, uh, we shouldn't emphasize the external adorning. That shouldn't be our main point. But jewelry itself is not sinful, as long as it's not, you know, something we're trying to do there. Um, over-focus on the external. And then, I think the daughters of Jerusalem say, we will make for you ornaments of gold with beads of silver. Uh, you know, she's going to be honored. She's going to be beautified. And uh, you might think about Jesus in this. He beautifies us. You know, he finds us beautiful in spite of ourselves. And he does a lot to try to make us even better with uh, what he adorns us with. Thoughts and comments through verse 11. Is he delusional and she's not actually that pretty? Or is she actually that pretty? <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to say this yet, but let's see if I can find my notes on that point. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. All right. So, you know, I think that that's that's the truth. That, well, look, think about it this way. Have you ever seen a really beautiful man, woman, that was really stunningly beautiful until you got to know them? And they were so obnoxious and so stuck up and so ridiculous that you didn't actually see them as beautiful anymore. 
You know, I think that happens. I, there are some people that may be physically pleasing to the eye, but you know them, and they're just, just you know, makes you sick just to see them. Because they're so, they know how beautiful they are, and they think they are, and they're just ordinary. And, and so I think, you know, as husbands, for example, we must be attracted by our wife. And we need to be, we almost need to pray that God work in our heart, that we find our wife to be extremely physically attractive no matter what she looks like. And, I mean, that means a lot of stuff. It means we don't feed our lusts with a bunch of garbage. And it means we we fight to love our wife and appreciate her and talk to her and about her in loving ways. You know, we wouldn't ever tell anybody or even dream, well, I wish she looked like this. You know, those thoughts need to be totally driven out. That's not appropriate for a man who loves his wife as his own flesh and loves her only. So I think it doesn't matter what she looks like. If you love her, she looks like a million dollars. You know, I mean, would there be anybody that could possibly be as beautiful to us as our wife? If so, we need to ask for God's help to make us have eyes for our wife only. I just don't think we even look at the others. The competition isn't on the radar. None of them are my wife. None of them are who's beautiful to me. And I think that needs to be our mindset. And I would say, you know, that that, that's just an important element of the exclusive mutual relationship in marriage. And I think you really do see it here. And I think it's normal for us to be insecure about our own appearance. And it's normal for a husband or wife to be extremely smitten with the appearance of their mate because they love them, they treasure them, they value them, and they're the only person they ever look at. That's my two cents worth. As an example of people who often look good but may not end up being good in the sense think of all of the celebrities and movie stars who you watch them in a film or see them on television, you see them doing something and you go wow, and then you find out what they're like in real life yeah. and suddenly you can't you can't watch them because you know what they are yes so, yeah. really spoils some movies that way yeah, I, I can imagine, I don't know about any movie stars so it doesn't spoil anything for me <laughs> <clears throat> but yeah, I can see that. Why are the daughters of Jerusalem getting involved? Well, they are involved. And, uh, <laughs> I don't know why. I, who are these people? <laughs> well, you understand this is all, you know, songs. And so the daughters of Jerusalem are kind of like, um, kind of like the narrator, kind of like the third party, kind of like, you know, there's just going to be different areas where the daughters of Jerusalem are going to come into this. And so this is just the way it's written. Backup singers. <laughs> yeah. yeah, maybe so. Backup singers, that's a good one. Well, could they be like her girlfriend? Like, yeah, it's unusual for her girlfriend to Maybe so. That, that's reasonable. Yeah, most of the places, I think that'd be fun. Yeah. The bridesmaids, I don't know. Yeah. Well, anything else? 12 to 14. While the king was at his table, I prepared for the fragrance. My beloved is to me a house of myrrh which lies all night in my breast. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of Engedi. Okay, so now this is her. They're going back and forth, and uh, both sides are really... uh, you know, praising the appearance of the other one. While the king was at his table, my perfume gave forth its fragrance. So she's got a bundle of perfume, and it's it's smelling good, but not as good as him. 
My beloved is to me a pouch of myrrh, which lies all night between my breasts. So he's, uh, smells better to her, he's more delightful to her than the perfume that's giving forth its fragrance. Uh, and, uh, he's evidently spent the night close to her. Uh, my beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Uh, again, that might not be overly, uh, uh, you know, impressive to your mate, to your husband. But, uh, you know, Engedi was an oasis in the wilderness. And so you can imagine after seeing sand and scrub brush, these henna blossoms were a sight for sore eyes there at the oasis in Engedi. So that's what she's saying. You look like, man, the most beautiful rose bush in the middle of this barren wilderness. Um, you know, and again, what's important is not an objective assessment of his appearance. What count is what, what he is to me. Did you notice that? My beloved is to me, verse 13. My beloved is to me, verse 14. There is power in praising your spouse for what they are to you. To you. They are stunningly beautiful, and you cherish them. I don't care what they are to anybody else. They're not anybody else's. So that that he really emphasizes my beloved, or she emphasizes my beloved is to me, and uh, she's she's taken by him as much as he is by her. And again, um, from the woman's standpoint, think about this: our relationship with Jesus. How much did Jesus mean to us? What is he to us? Are we that devoted to him and focused on him? Or do we find ourselves with eyes straying to all these other idols that we think are more beautiful than he is? Thoughts and comments? I can't get over that she thinks he smells so good. <laughs> I mean, there is just nothing about him that's not awesome. <clears throat> you know, it's just like, you know, when you love him, you love it all. I mean, just thinking in a chemical sense, scent is very powerful, and it has the power to stir up memories more deeply than a lot of other things. I mean... You smell baking bread or something, and suddenly you're five years old in your grandmother's kitchen. Right. Or, you know, like, you smell a certain cologne with a little bit of leather, and, you know, I'm 17 again, and we won't go any further on that story. So, that kind of thing is not uh, unusual, I guess. Yeah, and so, I mean, he's got a distinctive uh, fragrance to her. That, you know, she, maybe it's his cologne, maybe it's his natural, uh, state or whatever. I don't know how all that was, but, but it's him. And she can't get enough of him. That's the thing. I think, you know, I don't know what he really smelled like or what he really looked like or any of that stuff. She's not looking at it objectively. You know, she's, it's, it's who he is to her. She's, and, and incredibly, he loves her, and he thinks she's valuable. This is pretty cool. All right, how about fifteen to two two? How beautiful you are, my darling! How beautiful you are! Your eyes are like doves. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. Indeed, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters cypresses. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. Alright, so they're back and forth now, alternating speeches as they talk to each other, uh, not just about each other. And the focus that each one has is, is the other one. This is not self-centered. This is focused on the other one. So how beautiful you are, my darling, he says. How beautiful you are, your eyes are like doves. You know, so they are, he's really focused on her. He loves her, he cares about her. And he breaks down the barriers of reserve and inhibition in praising her. You know, and she's been insecure about her appearance. Uh, there's no doubt about how beautiful he sees her as being. Um, 
And she responds back the same thing. Actually, the very same thing, but it wouldn't sound very good in English to say how beautiful you are to him. So they translate it handsome, but it's the same word. How handsome you are, my beloved, and so pleasant. She feels the same way about him that he feels about her. Uh, our couch is luxuriant. The beams of our houses are cedars, our rafters, cypresses. I wonder if she's not talking about the enduring nature of the relationship. Uh, this is a solid dwelling made out of solid materials. There's something really solid about him. Um, and, you know, again, thinking about the relationship between the Lord and his people. Shouldn't we be always thinking about the Lord, delighting the Lord, talking about the Lord, loving the Lord, seeing him as beautiful, no one like him. Of course, that's objectively true also with him. But it's amazing. He can be uh, the most handsome, the most wonderful, the, the most incredible, and yet there are plenty of people who don't see it and who can only look at the other guys, whatever other idols there are claiming our affection. You know, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's a, it's a heart thing. It's not, it's not a physical thing. You know, why do we look at other gods besides the Lord? Not because he's not beautiful, but because we want extracurricular, you know, interests besides God. And why do we look, I mean, every once in a while, you, you look at some of these guys that are having affairs. And sometimes, objectively speaking, their wives are beautiful. It's not because they don't have, and sometimes their wives are quite available. But it's not the forbidden pleasure. I go back to Eve always. It wasn't because the fruit in the garden stunk, and that was the only fruit that she could manage to stomach. The fruit in the garden was awesome, but she wanted the fruit she couldn't have. That's the thing that makes it attractive so often. So she then says back about herself, you know, I am the Rose of Sharon, the Lily of the Valleys. Maybe better, I am a Rose of Sharon, a Lily of the Valleys. What she's saying is, I'm just a common wildflower. Because Sharon was a place of all kinds of flowers. And the valleys were filled with lilies. She's saying, there's so many more like me, there's nothing special about me. Again, she's so insecure about her appearance. I'm just a common lily like all the other ones. I'm just a rose like all the roses that grow in Sharon. I'm no valuable orchid, I'm just a common daisy. You know, she feels so unworthy of the man's attention and admiration. That's a big issue. That People haven't changed much, have they? Insecure, even after all he's done to reaffirm her. You know, isn't that a common thing? Female thing, but men, men are insecure in their own ways, too. Incredibly. And But he, boy, he picks it up. You know, he is good. He's quick, and he, he sees what she needs, and he can turn the phrase well. He turns her salt foot down into praise. He says, like a lily among the thorns, so is my darling among the maidens. You know, you're the only one worth looking at. You know, all the others look like briars and brambles compared to you. You know, and she needed to hear that, obviously, and we may need to say it and show it. And, you know, give her the security that she needs. There's nobody else he's interested in. No, They're all ugly compared to her, as far as he's concerned. Um, and, and, again, you know, if, if that seems difficult, you know, like, well, you know, that'd be easy if you were married to somebody like you are, but look at what I'm married to, or whatever. I want you to think about how the Lord looks at us. The beauty he's able to see in us. The value he places on us. The excitement he has in having a relationship with us. He actually wants us and cherishes us. In Ephesians 1, we are what he inherits. That he's excited about inheriting. He wants us. It's amazing that the Lord can want and find beauty in people as ugly as we are. If the Lord can find us beautiful, we can surely find our wife beautiful. Again, no matter what they look like. They don't look like that to you. They look like the mayor among Pharaoh's stallions to you. Thoughts and comments? It is a never-ending job for him, you know. Yeah. <laughs> to keep telling her this. You're right, yes. 
Yes, yes, she's slow to be convinced. <laughs> Typical of human beings, I think. She sounds normal. Yeah. yeah. Just because he says it, still it's hard for her to feel it. So he continues to say it and show it, you know, both. And he seeks her. He wants to be with her. He's very clear about that. Um, I think a lot of good principles here, a lot of needed principles. Again, it's easier to teach than apply. But, you know, I think this is, this is, you know, helpful things. I think it's what it's teaching. If it's not, it's still true, obviously, from other passages. But I, I think that is exactly, more or less what we should be getting out of this. Other thoughts? Alright, three to seven. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He has brought me to his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Sustain me with raisin cakes, refresh me with apples, because I am lovesick. Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Well, she fires back similar compliments. Probably wouldn't be appropriate to call him a lily or a rose. So he, she calls him an apple tree among the trees of the forest. You know, he, you know, the apple tree bears sweet fruit. I mean, these other trees are just, you know, common trees. But he's the apple tree among the trees of the forest. So she's adjusting her metaphor to what's appropriate to a man, but she's saying the same thing. You're the only tree that, that bears good fruit. You know, and he's saying she's beautiful. He, the fact that he's a tree to her, I think also is saying he makes her feel safe. She finds comfort and rest. She says, in, in his shade, I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He was everything to her. She could find shelter. She could find sustenance. Uh, so, you remember, she's been sunburned. Now she can find shade in him from the glare of the burning sun. And she loves to sit in the shade and eat his fruit. She enjoys his body uh, and him. Uh, of course, there's one who invites us to sit in his shade and enjoy the fruit of his love. You know, almost almost everything in, in some of these passages is very applicable to our relationship with Jesus. And man, he is our shelter, and he's our sustenance. So it's, it's I think, always helpful not to forget uh, the, the, you know, deeper spiritual analogy. He's brought me into his banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. I, I think of like, a conqueror planting a flag in the territory that the commander had taken over. You know, and and he's taken over her heart. He's got his banner of love right on uh, in her and and she's she's been conquered. She's been vanquished. She is his. She loves him. Uh, she can't imagine what she'd do without him. In fact, the intensity of her love for him is exhausting. He she says, "Sustain me with raisin cakes. Refresh me with apples." Because I'm lovesick. You know, I mean, she is just overwhelmed. It's just, she can't, she can't even breathe. She can't, she's famished. She's just, this love has been so intense and it's just so incredible. She needs some, you know, uh, nourishment or she's going to uh, faint from from uh, the delirium of her love. And again, do we have that view of Jesus? Do we want to be with him? Do we love him that much? Are we that intense in our desire for him? Um, and, and thinking about Jesus and realizing that we have that kind of relationship with him should help those who are single, who may say, well, but I don't have this. Well, yes, you do. In another sense, you very much do. Uh, you have the best uh, you know, husband you could ever have. Uh, let his left hand be under my head and his right hand embrace me. Now, uh, she wants physical closeness. Uh, Probably not just a hut. You know, I think many of these passages, you know, go beyond what he's expressing, specifically. Uh, but see the tenderness. His hands are not brutal and rough. She tr- trusts his hands. You know, or his left hand under her head, his right hand embracing her. He has hands that have treated her 
with respect and love and kindness. Uh, and certainly that's needed. Um, and, you know, there's none of this, you know, roughness or, you know, that's just being a man with her. She, she trusts those tender hands. I will pause there before verse seven since that gets us into a whole nother uh, thing. Do you have questions or comments to verse six? It's a good thing she's under an apple tree. Yeah, that's right. Well, she's under him then, is what that means. And so she's able to partake of his fruit, and that sustains her, exactly. That's the analogy she's using. Or apricots, as my side note says. Oh, okay. (laughs) I won't debate that one. I have no idea. Well, I guess it's or he's. I've seen apple trees. I don't think I've ever seen an apricot tree. I guess they must have them somewhere. Doesn't sound quite as manly. <laughs> but it's really no idea. sweet. Then she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. Now that's one of three times that's said in the book. It's her warning advice to the daughters of Jerusalem. And I think I know what she's saying, and I think it's a good statement. Uh, love is such a powerful thing. It must not be misused or toyed with. Don't force it. Wait for it to blossom. Don't rush into a relationship. Don't hurry it. Sometimes we get desperate and we try to, you know, arrange it artificially. Um, love is not just a passing fling. It's demanding. It's exhausting. There are, you know, devastating results if it's awakened in the wrong context. And I think especially she's saying don't don't engage in these things before you're married. Too fast, too soon spoils it all. Wait for the right time and the right person. You know, it's sinful to express this kind of love at the wrong time, the wrong place, with the wrong person. The world basically says any time, any person, any place. God said, no, my time. And my person, my place. So we need uh, to respect <coughs> the exclusiveness of marriage. We need to respect the boundaries that God has set on physical love. Um, we need to wait till the wedding night. You know, strong desire doesn't make intimacy right. We need to stay virgins till we marry. Uh, it's worth waiting for. And it's so much better to wait. Uh, so love must not be aroused until the right time. Uh, and she says, I adjure you. I, I put you under oath by the gazelles and the deer. I don't exactly know why by the gazelles and the deer. We will see gazelles some more. Uh, but uh, at any rate, she's saying, this is serious. Daughters of Jerusalem, don't you mess with this until the right time. You know, this is not intended as something to... Um, you know, seduce us into an inappropriate relationship. You know, this is something saying love is wonderful in its place, but you must not take us out of its place. We need to encourage others to wait. You know, and again, you know, it's not, it's not like God or we are trying to keep people from having fun. We want them to have the most pleasure with the least regret. I mean, it's so much better. Um, so, I mean, you think about it. If, if we're going to really do this, and you think about single people, or extramarital things, you know, you have to watch what you do so you don't rev up the motor with no place to go. You know, you have to watch um, what you say, what you look at, what you wear. You know, we have to, if we're going to protect our virginity in every sense. And we're going to have to be careful about that. And we're going to have to really be put under oath not to arouse or awaken love until the right moment. There is a right moment and that's when we're married. But before that, it's not the moment. And don't awaken it too soon. It'll just blow up in your face. And a lot of people have lived to regret deeply uh, what they've done that has been inappropriate and, and out of context. So I think that's what she's saying, is wait till you marry. Thoughts and comments to verse 7. doesn't matter whether you attribute that to her or him. Um, 
I don't know if it matters, but I think it's her. It's her in 3-5, and uh, it's her in 8-4. I, I think every time it's her that says that. My foot will to him every time. Okay. Well, I don't think so, but who knows? That's why I was wondering if it mattered because it, I don't. It's the same teaching either way. Right. I thought he was saying, "Don't wake up my love as a right. prayer until she's the way, ready to wake up." Yeah, you don't wake her up that's why until she is tri- happy. Attributed. Right. Yes, yeah. there are other interpretations of this verse by by all means, and so yeah, that may de- depending on how you interpret it. Uh, although I think most people do take it as her, even with other interpretations, but, but whatever. Um, that, I mean, that's one of the challenges all through here. Who's saying what to whom? You know, and so and it goes back and forth. And it's not necessarily, like I say, a connected story. I mean, what we've seen so far could be not really a story, but, you know, it's kind of the back and forth and so forth. But then there's going to come in some things that are like, wow, I don't know how to fit this in. Is this, this is another, another approach or whatever, so. Well, the fact that the, they put in the word awaken my love, they put in the word my. Yeah, yeah. Which was added. Some people think it's like she's putting the do not disturb sign, you know, wait wait till right. we're finished, you know, but I think that's not. And then they change, well, the she is literally it, I guess. So. Right, right. Yeah, I think don't awaken love until the right moment for love to be awakened. And is it that's both sexually and emotionally? Well, sure. Sure. I mean, sexually, certainly here. I can't avoid that in this book. But yes, even emotionally. I mean, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be emotionally um, intimate until it's appropriate to be physically intimate, I would say. All right, that's as far as I'll go for tonight. So we'll 